0: All right, let's pray together. Uh, Father, we uh, come to this again, and uh, Lord, uh, what I need and what uh, my friends here need is so much more than a lesson, a lecture, um, uh, an inspirational talk, Uh, but Lord, what we need is you. What we need is uh, your word that's met by your spirit uh, to make us new people. So Lord, would you do this again? Even if it's imperceptible, even if it's hard, uh, we ask you to do this in us. Remake us into your image, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. What do you do with your guilt? Uh, Jen and I, uh, we have very different tastes when it comes to our Netflix consumption. Uh, The one thing we have in common is uh, the office. If it's been a long, hard day, uh, there's nothing better than a nightcap of the office uh, to close it out. Uh, But we have a little bit bigger windows. That's when the differences come. And uh, I I tend to at least be more tolerant of something that's a little more dark, uh, and uh, the dark series that I've been into for a long time. is called Bloodlines, and I'm about ready to ruin the first two seasons for you, um, if you're not into it. Uh, but it's still worth watching. I'm just going to totally uh, ruin it for you. Uh, but the whole, really the whole show is about guilt. It's about what do you do? Uh, it's, it's, it's suspense all the way through. Uh, the main characters, uh, they're all in the Florida Keys, so their last name are the Rayburns. And uh, the Rayburns, the, old, the Grandma and Grandpa Rayburn own this inn that's right on the beach, and they've raised their five kids there. Uh, One of their children uh, dies in a boating accident uh, years and years before the show really takes place, but they're looking back on this event over and over and over again because when this child, when she died, she died in a boating accident. The only person who was there for the boating accident was one of the brothers. His name's Danny, and Danny uh, is, is, is the scapegoat of this child's death all the way through the show. They blame the death on Danny over and over and over again. And Danny's a complicated figure if you've watched the show. Uh, You you don't really know what to think about him. Sometimes you feel really sorry for him, and then right the very next minute you'll hate him because he's a jerk, so you don't know what to do with him. And later on in the show, this is where I'm going to do the spoiler, one of the brothers kills him. Uh, John kills him, drowns him. And John's been this upstanding citizen. He's a detective for the for the, uh, for the police department. And you're thinking and you, you think when the show starts you would think that's the last thing that John Rayburn would do. But he does. And John thinks that's the last thing he would do. That he's not even capable of something like that. Well a cop, another detective, starts digging around and starts to find out that maybe who they thought killed Danny wasn't who killed Danny. Maybe it really was someone in the family. And so when he begins, this detective begins to dig around, he gets knocked off too. And he gets knocked off by one of the other brothers, Kevin. And so here you have the two brothers. I'm telling you, I just ruined two seasons of the show for you. Here you you have two brothers who throughout the show you really fall in love with because compared to Danny, these are great guys. And they do something that they didn't think they were capable of and that you as the watcher didn't think that they were capable of. And the question is, remains throughout the whole show, what are they going to do with their guilt? Three seasons are out. I've got one more episode. I'm going to finish out tonight. I almost did it last night, uh, but I got one to go. And it's not going to be over. So there's going to be a fourth season. Um, but guilt is something that we all experience. You know, Maybe you experience it uh, now in different ways. Uh, I experience it now. If I uh, finish off the dessert in the middle of the night, I feel guilty about it. When I was a kid, uh, I, 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 got, I was in an altercation and um, I got a black eye in that altercation and I told my mom and dad that I got an elbow to the, to the eye in a basketball match. But it wasn't true. So what did I do to do with my guilt? I lied. Another time when I was a real little kid, I had grass stains all over my pants uh, that were brand new. They were church pants and I wore them to school. And I didn't want my mom to find out about them. And so they forever lived in the corner and she never knew about it. So what did I do? I hid from her now those silly stories a a drama like bloodlines this is all fun and games until it's your life and the Bible is not silent when it comes to what we do with our guilt the Psalms address it the Psalms address the whole palette of human emotion it very much is God's counseling book we see there what are we going to do with our feelings what are we going to do with our emotions On one side, you've got people in the church, they say that there's a strong tendency to downplay your feelings, to suppress your feelings. So don't do anything about your feelings. Ignore them and just trudge ahead with your willpower. Keep doing the right thing and quit listening to your feelings. That's what the church has a strong tendency towards. Then out in the world, the secular tendency is to champion your feelings, to not question your feelings, but to name them and express them. And then you'll experience real freedom. But I think what the scriptures do, the scriptures give us another way of dealing with our emotions. What the scriptures do is they they, they, they cause us to name our feelings, but not unquestionably. Not to just swallow them whole and say, this is the way I feel, therefore this is the way I'm going to live. What the scriptures do is they help you sift through them. What do you hold on to and what do you let go of? And I think that's what we'll see with guilt. And I think what we'll see in our passage is three ways to deal with our guilt. I'm already to read the passage, but you'll see it. Verses 1 and 2, you pray your guilt. Verses 3 and 4, you acknowledge the forgiveness. And verses 5 to 8, you wait for deliverance. Pray your guilt. Acknowledge your forgiveness. Verses 5 to 8, wait for full deliverance. So let's read this psalm together. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, and that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The word of the Lord. It's So right off the bat, verses 1 and 2, you hear his desperate tone, don't you? He says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voices of my pleas for mercy. Is that what your prayers look like? Do they sound like they're coming from the depths? Do they sound like, please? Usually that's not the way we think about Christianity, is it? We usually think Christianity is about being sunny and bright and nice and put together. But right here, you're dealing with a psalmist who's depressed, who's a mess, who has his hand, who has his head in his hands and who's in tears. But why is he in tears? Why is he depressed? Well, here, if you look in verse two, you see, he says, for please of mercy, please of mercy. In other words, he knows that what he deserves is to be cut off from the Lord. What he deserves is that the Lord wouldn't hear his prayer. Now, this isn't the only reason anybody's depressed. There's lots of reasons you can be depressed. But one of the reasons you could be depressed could be because of the guilt of your sin. This is tough to handle for us. We think that the Lord might say that he's hurt us not because of mercy but because he hears, our pleas for mer- he hears our pleas because of our blamelessness or our righteousness but that's not true. He's calling on the mercy of the Lord. But there's a simple real simple principle for us to bypass here. Usually the last thing we want to do when we're experiencing this kind of heavy guilt is it to pray. We know that God's holy. We we know that He doesn't have to do anything to do with us if He doesn't want to because of our sins. But that's not where the psalmist is banking their trust. Not banking it in His justice, He's banking it in His mercy. But why this guilt? What's up with this guilt? You might say, I I don't feel guilty about anything. I just do what I want to do. Or don't we live in a culture where you just kind of figure out what's right and wrong for yourself and you don't let anyone make you feel bad for who you are or what you've done and don't let anybody put you on a guilt trip? Is that what our culture says? I think it is. But it doesn't mean that guilt doesn't have a factor in our psyche, and here's why. The Bible uses two words for guilt. In the two words for guilt, one really means guilt in the way that you you think about a decision. This word that's talking about a decision, the opposite of this is innocence. It's very specific. It's about stealing a candy bar and feeling bad about it. It's about getting grass stains on your church pants and feeling bad about it. It's about, one, I didn't tell you the whole thing. It's about the fact that I poured Coke on this kid and he punched me in the face. I felt bad about it. It's about an instance. It's about a point in time. But then there's this other kind of guilt. And, and, and sometimes, the Bible trans, sometimes different versions of the Bible translate it as guilt, and sometimes it translates it as shame. And shame is very it's similar to guilt, but it's different enough for us to talk about. Just as guilt is about something that's specific, shame is about something that's more general. It doesn't make you feel bad about a decision. It makes you feel bad about who you are. Shame is something you experience when you don't meet the expectations that you've put on yourself or someone else has put on you. You haven't lived up to some kind of standard in general and you feel bad about it. See, shame is aspiring to be something and failing. So on one hand, you have rules and guilt that go together and then you have vision and shame that go together. Rules are doable, but shame is devastating. So what is it that haunts you? What do you cry out to the Lord for mercy? Is it a specific decision that you made in the past that you try everything imaginable to hide from your own consciences from other people? Maybe you hide it from yourself by being so busy that you don't have any time alone and you don't have any time for reflection because you know that this moment in time is going to be it's going to go into rewind instantly but maybe what haunts you isn't a specific decision but it's the heaviness of your shame it's the feeling that you're just not enough but what are you going to do when this hits you you're going to fall back into your busyness you're going to abuse the substance Are you going to retell your story in such a way that it's more palatable to you and to other people, even though it's untrue? Are you just going to put on a happy face of superficiality and walk through your day when there's authenticity with God available to you? See, God's merciful, and he will hear your prayers for mercy. But prayer's not enough. It's got to progress here. And that's why the psalm goes more than two verses. The psalm begins to move into acknowledging our forgiveness in verses 3 and 4. And what you see right there out of the gate in verse 3 is this record of sin. Record of sin. See, there's a record of sin against you. God knows uh, both your real reasons for guilt and your real reasons for shame. Not what's imagined, but what's real. And if we were to stand before God based on how well we did against that, that's what the psalmist is saying. Who could stand? Nobody's got a chance. We fall way, 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 short. But what's good about this is that there's a real record, that there's a real standard that applies to us. And we find it, we find it summarized in the Ten Commandments. We find it explicated in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. We see the fullness of what God requires from us. It's objective. But instead of accepting an objective standard that God puts before us, we create our own. And what we do is we create our own by subtracting what God's required of us or by adding to it. By subtracting or adding to it. Sometimes we subtract from it because it's just flat out too burdensome. We're just flat out irrelevant, we think, for our lives. For instance, you might cut out this command, the fourth commandment, to Sabbath. Because really, I mean, how are we supposed to uh, slow down long enough to rest in Christ's finished work on our behalf when we're Americans? I mean, it just seems impossible, so why even try? Maybe it's, Maybe you just think, well, uh, on Sundays, you know, I'm big with being on, with my family. God will understand. God thinks family is important, so I want to be with family. Well, God's commanded us to worship on Sundays. So what have we done? Well, we, we've just relaxed it. We've made it more doable for us. But look at what happens at the end of verse 4. End of verse 4, it says this strange thing, I think, where it says, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you're to be feared. Well, you think it would say, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are to be loved. Isn't that what you expect? So why does it say fear? Well, it's because there is a real moral standard that's really based on God's character. And when you really take stock of who you are, if you really take stock of who God is, and you really take stock of what God requires of you, you'll see that you're without hope. But we, when we see that, it's to, that he is to be feared, it's because we know that God requires a lot of us. So we either omit things from God's law or we add to it. I know it sounds crazy. You read the Ten Commandments, it's like, golly, I can't do those ten things. That's That's what you're supposed to feel about it. We like to sneak other things in there. It's unintended. We usually don't even realize it. But we like to sneak things in there like career achievement. For instance, I could say I think what God requires of me is to be a really good minister of the gospel. He does. But then I define what really good minister of the gospel is. I begin to say things like, I want to be really well respected in my presbytery. I want all the other ministers in our presbytery to think well of me. I want our church to be on this steady climb of, uh, of growth in terms of attendance and in terms of giving. That's a sign of a real successful pastor of the gospel. Or to say, I, you know, I want some national notoriety. I want some denominational notoriety. That's what I expect of myself. When God the whole time is saying, I don't expect that from you. Is it bad if any of those things are true? No. What's bad is when I require it of myself. Now you can do the same thing. I took something that's not necessarily bad and I've added to God's law. So what's something that's not necessarily bad that you add to it? Is it some rule about money? Is it something like, it is a sin to have credit card debt? Now, it's not a good idea to have credit card debt. If you've got it, you probably need to take some steps to knock that out. But I don't know if I'd say it's a sin. Are you extra holy if you have no debt? It's probably a good thing not to have debt. We're adding to God's law when we say it's a sin to have it. We can do this financially, you can do it with your career, you can do it with your family. You can do it with politics. All these things are ways that we add to God's law. But there's another way. It has something to do with what happened this week with Charlottesville. You know what the white supremacists were doing, don't you? They added to God's law. Their 11th commandment was, thou should be White. Well, God never said that. God's after all tribes, all tongues, all nations that we would worship together for eternity. And I know that not many of you, if any of you, would say that you're a white supremacist. I know that not many of you would say, you know, I'm ready to go to that rally if we had one here in Lexington. But do you know that as whites, what we do every day, we plow through minorities, not with cars, but with our lives. And we're usually not aware of it. we look down upon and avoid minorities, usually in very subtle ways, but that we show that we've added whiteness to God's law. When you begin to feel guilt when it comes to race, let me, let me ask you to do something. Go to verses three and four. Do you see it in verse three and four? Why is it so bad to say, you know what? There's racism in my heart. I'm not a white supremacist. I'm not angry at the whites if you're a non-white here today. But there's something in there. And when you can stand under the blood of Jesus and confess that, you all of a sudden are free and you don't have to defend yourself. So friends, whether it's race, whether it's professional achievements, whether it's some kind of financial stewardship issue, These are all attempts for us to procure our own salvation. And in the meantime, we bypass this joy of living in the fact that we're in relationship with a God who keeps no record of sin and in him there is forgiveness. So if you want to deal with your guilt, you've got to to acknowledge his forgiveness. You've got to bring it to him in prayer, verses 1 and 2. But then you've got to wait for deliverance. This is what we see in verses 5 to 8. We see, and, and we see forgiveness in verses 3 and 4. The penalty has been paid, verses 3 and 4. Then 5 and 6, you've got a whole bunch of waiting going on. I mean, it sounds weird to even read that verse, doesn't it? You repeat the same thing, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. And actually, the word wait is included in those verses. I just didn't put it in this translation. So five times in two verses, you have the word wait. Your English teacher would have told you, don't do that. So why did the psalmist do it? He did it so that you'd put five exclamation points after the word wait. The Bible, I know there's exclamation points in your Bible, but in the the original language, there were no exclamation points. So how did they do exclamation points? They just repeated things. And we see this wait. So you've been forgiven and now you've gotta wait. And then verse seven, you see what's coming down the road at you, don't you? You see that there's plentiful redemption. So there's this interval between the reception of forgiveness and plentiful redemption. and there's this waiting that happens, and this waiting is really messy. <laughs> this waiting, you're dealing with your continued and dwelling sin. That's what you're doing. You've been for- the penalty's been paid, but the presence of sin still exists. I think oftentimes as Christians uh, we have uh, we have too high of expectations of what we think sanctification looks like in our lives. And when we lead other people, we have too high of expectations of what sanctification looks for them. We think it happens really fast. People battle their addictions fast. They battle their pride fast. They battle their racist tendencies fast. But we're supposed to wait. Does this is mean we do nothing. I don't think it means to do nothing. Our habits can change. We have been given the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, that assures us of our forgiveness. We do have the Holy Spirit that has given us spiritual gifts that uplift the church. We do have the Holy Spirit that helps us obey what God's commanded of us. We are supposed to repent and change. Change is possible. Listen us what Martin Luther says. He says, This life, therefore, is not righteousness... But growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is ongoing. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory but all is being purified. Let me say it again. Not the whole thing. (laughs) Just the last part. Um, All does not gleam in glory, but all is being purified. So this waiting, as we wait, we do change. It's imperceptible. It's slow. It's arduous, but it's happening. It's messy, but it's taking place. So we've got a lot of waiting going on in verses 5 and 6. And then this 7 and 8, the psalmist turns into a preacher. You see it? The psalmist says, O Israel, hope in the Lord! For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So somehow this waiting leads to him proclaiming the goodness of the Lord. Well, you would think that since his his redemption is not fully realized that he'd be a little bit too timid to preach. But it's not the case. See, we, he, he, plentiful redemption is in the future, but in the present, there's a lot of waiting. And we usually think that a qualification for preaching, for ministry, is in direct proportion to our spiritual health. The thinking goes, we'll do good ministry when we're doing well spiritually. And so is the converse. We'll do bad ministry when we're doing Bad when we're doing bad spiritually, and it's true. The number one qualification for leaderships in the scriptures is character. But what if we've misconstrued things? What if we thought that what it means to proclaim the goodness of the Lord, to proclaim His steadfast love, to proclaim His plentiful redemption, we really think that means perfection? Therefore, we know that we're haunted by this guilt, so we just say, "Well, I can't be involved in any kind of real ministry. I'm not perfection." They can't be involved in a real ministry. They're not perfection. So we just wait. We wait for that to happen before we make a proclamation. But this is not what's going on with the psalmist. Think about it this way. What if doing good spiritually doesn't look the way we think it does? Because who's better to share their faith than someone who is in the depths of their sin and cries out to God? That's who we have in the psalmist. Who who better to share their faith than someone who acknowledges that God doesn't hold our sin against us? Who better to share their faith than one who's placing their faith in the plentiful redemption that's going to come when we're with Jesus? No one's better than that. So friends, are you feeling guilty for your sin? Why don't you be a preacher? So are you in hiding today? Do you need to come into the light with God in prayer? Do you, do, do, you need, do you need to acknowledge His forgiveness in your life? Do you need to begin to, re, to, 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 to grapple with, am I, am I taking away from what God requires of me so and I've relaxed it? Therefore, I, I'm not giving the Holy Spirit time to do things in my life that are really possible. Or are we adding to it because we're trying to save ourselves with our career, with our money, with our time, with our accomplishments? with our moral performance, when that's not what God's asking of us. Do you need help while you wait? There's a lot of waiting. I, I mean, I became a Christian as a little kid, and I, I hope I make it into my 90s. I really do. That's a lot of waiting. And maybe that's how long you're going to have to wait too. Maybe you're going to have to struggle with whatever it is, the guilt that haunts you, Maybe you're going to have to just accept that Christ really has forgiven you of that while you wait. All this is offered in the good news of Jesus Christ. He really does love you, friend. He really is strong enough to deal with your guilt. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, thank you that uh, we don't have to come to you with fake smiles and be happy-go-lucky all of our life, but Lord, that you really, that you know what to do with us uh, when guilt haunts us. Lord, I pray that we would uh, come into the light with our guilt, with our shame of how we're not enough for some decision that's happened in the past, and we begin to put it through the filter of the gospel. Or do this, we ask in Christ's name, Amen.